You can turn over to uh, Matthew chapter 20. We're working our way through chapter 20. and I redid the whole outline this morning because I thought I was going to try to finish up chapter 21 today, but I just couldn't do it. So I thought, or 20, but I just couldn't do it. So we're going to just take these couple verses and finish it up next week. But uh, as we're looking at Matthew chapter 20, there's uh, three verses right here in the middle of this uh, section, uh, verses 17 to 19. And um, those three verses really uh, highlight what I call the secret ambition of Christ. And I just want you to follow along as I read the text for us this morning out of Matthew chapter 20, beginning in verse 17. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. Pretty clear portion of scripture. There's no real questions there. There's no mystery as to what Christ is trying to tell everybody. And yet I still think that they didn't have it in their hearts what he was saying. They couldn't comprehend him dying, let alone submitting himself to the torturous events that lie ahead. But the words are very simple. They're very, what I would say, precise in what he's discussing. And yet I think that they truly did not understand the ambition that was hidden in the heart of Christ to die for the sins of the world. And um, we want to look at some various aspects of this uh, this morning, but this isn't the first time that he brought this up. We know that because we've seen it in other places. We saw it in chapter 16, verse 21, and also in chapter 17, verses 22 and 23. However, this third and final time he brings up the the prediction of his death, um, it really adds a lot more detail, you might say, than the other two. And it gives a little further uh, revelation as to what exactly is going to happen. But the truth of Christ's sacrifice is probably the, the center of what we believe in. And um, he doesn't just say that he's going to die and rise. He doesn't just say that he'll be you know, simply crucified and rise. He kind of goes into detail a little bit here in these verses that he would be betrayed, that he's going to be handed over to the religious leaders, then he's going to be condemned to death, and uh, they will hand him over to the pagans where he'll be mocked and he'll be scourged. He will be finally crucified, and then following that, the, on the third day, he will rise from the dead. That's a lot of detail to be given by someone who um, is awaiting that uh, torturous event ahead of him. But I want you to understand this morning, the sufferings of Christ were no accident. He, he just didn't um, happenstance on this situation. A lot of people think that Christ was a great man and all this stuff. The only thing is he messed up. You know, they actually killed him. <laughs> So he kind of lost in the end. Um, But the sufferings of Christ were no miscalculation. Uh, There were no surprise to him. There was no shock. Rather, here he gives details, precise details, 
of exactly what is going to happen to him. I mean, can you imagine something horrible happening to you next week? And you say, okay, well, I guess that could happen to anybody, right? Sure. But could you imagine knowing in advance what that horrible situation is going to be? And not only that, but you know the details. Okay, you're going to be on a, in a car on 280, and you're going to be in an accident. And in the accident, you're going to have your arms severed and your left leg severed. And you're experiencing all this stuff in advance. I mean, what a horrible place to be in. Nobody likes to be in accidents. That's why they call them, you know, accidents, because you don't know they're going to happen. But can you imagine if you knew the details of all those things in advance? Can you imagine the suffering? You probably wouldn't sleep. But there was no shock here to Christ. In fact, he recorded his words over and over again throughout the Gospels. The first recorded words that he spoke out of the mouth of Jesus were, I must be about my Father's business. He wasn't concerned with his own desire, his own will, his own welfare. He was concerned with the Father's business. And also the last words that he spoke before he gave up his life on Calvary, three words, it is what? It is finished. So he must have had a clue what was involved in this situation. He knew about it all in advance. To the point to when it was all over, he could proclaim it is finished. He knew every detail. Now, that's just unfathomable to me. That somebody could go through that kind of just mental anguish, knowing something horrible is going to happen to you. But you know what? That actually speaks to his omniscience. That he knows all these things. And he wanted his disciples to kind of get a grasp of this. He wanted them to understand this, that this is what awaited him. And we can just tell by what we've seen so far that they didn't have a clue. They were so focused on him being the king and them being his, sub, their, his subjects. And when the kingdom come, boy, Jesus, when you put up your kingdom here on earth, we're going to be part of it. And when we're part of it, I know we're going to have a big part of it because we've been, through, been with, this, um, with you from the beginning. We're going to have a special place. And they were so focused on that. They were so focused on the glory of the kingdom. They missed what Christ has to go through, the sufferings, in order to get to that glorious place. Even Jews today don't understand the sufferings of Christ. That's why they don't follow him as the Messiah. They have a hard time with that. They're so focused on God ruling and reigning and and the majesty and all that. They think, how could God come down in a body and then be subject to such hate and such suffering? It doesn't add up to them. The disciples were looking for a lion, a leader, and they didn't know that they needed a lamb. But Jesus knew that. And so we see here, first of all, we see the plan of his suffering. We see this grievous event that Christ predicts. He actually predicts two of them, a grievous event and a glorious event. But first of all, we want to look at the plan of Christ's suffering. 
It says there, Jesus, when he was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside on the way and he said to them. Now, if you know anything about that area over there, they're coming from Jericho, which is about a thousand feet below sea level, and Jerusalem is about 3,800 feet above sea level. So they have about 5,000 feet in elevation uh, to deal with as they go up to Jerusalem. And you truly go up to Jerusalem when you go up there. They sit up on a, on a tell. It's a hill. And um, you have to go up there. And so as they were going up, it says, as he set his face to go up to Jerusalem, and uh, he knows what he's doing here. He takes his disciples aside. And uh, he says in verse 18, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. Or see, we are going up to Jerusalem. That kind of uh, indicates a certain amount of, you might say, surprise. They didn't expect him to go to Jerusalem, even though he said that several times. He wasn't, they weren't really focused on that. Like I said, they knew what awaited him in Jerusalem. They knew the religious leaders were there. They've been dealing with these people the whole time Christ was here on earth. In Luke 9.51, it says that he set his face to go up to Jerusalem. It was a resolute commitment on his part. That was his plan. Now remember, he'd been in northern Galilee, that area. He finished his Galilean ministry, and then he crossed over the Jordan, over to the beyond, the land called Perea. And still he had followers there, and he healed many people. And then he came down the backside of the Jordan... And to Jericho. And here we see him departing Jericho and heading toward Jerusalem. That's the plan. Um, And it's only a matter of days, beloved, before he faces the passion, before he faces the suffering that he's speaking of, before he faces the death and the resurrection. And so he he has this in in his heart. He has this in his mind, this is what's going to happen. And he pulls them aside because he wants them to understand the same thing. That indicates that there's a lot of people still following him. Remember, this is coming up on the Passover, and so these roads were well-traveled by people coming to Jerusalem to do their sacrificial offering. And so there's a lot of people around Christ. And he pulls his disciples kind of off the side of the road and kind of huddles them together and says, I just want you to understand that here's what's going to happen. Mark chapter 10, verse 32, gives us a parallel account. And that parallel account says this, They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. That was what they were feeling. And he began to tell them what was going to happen. He uses those two words, amazed and afraid. They knew what was awaiting for them in Jerusalem, the hostility of the religious leaders. And they didn't want to really go there. They were more focused on the kingdom. They thought, hey, let's just do the kingdom thing here right now. Why do we have to go through this suffering stuff? So they were, they were amazed has the idea of kind of being confused. It didn't make sense. What he was saying did not make sense to them. Even Thomas, 
uh, who's called Didymus, in John eleven sixteen, when they said they were going to Jerusalem, here's what he said, oh, we'll all go with you and we'll die too. <laughs> See, they knew what awaited Christ in Jerusalem. They didn't think there was a party there. And so when Christ said very authoritatively and very directly, the plan was to go to Jerusalem, that just kind of blew them away. That word fear in Mark is the word we get phobia from. They were, they were really afraid. They were confused and they were afraid. And Christ, in his love and his compassion, wanted to kind of pull them aside and help them to understand what was really going to go on here. Now, this isn't new news. The Old Testament is full of places where the, the prophets prophesied this was going to happen to Christ. Just to give you some of them, I don't think they're in your notes, but just to give you a couple of them, in Zechariah 9.9, it says that he would enter into Jerusalem. Psalm 2 says that he would know fury and rage of his enemies. Zechariah 13.7 says that he would be deserted by his friends. Zechariah 11.12 says that his betrayal would be by, uh, for 30 pieces of silver. I mean, these, this is, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years before this even happened. This is all prophesied. Psalm 22.16, that he would be pierced on the cross. Exodus 12.46 says that none of his bones would be broken, as well as Psalm 34.20. Psalm 22.18 says that his garments would be parted by casting of lots. Psalm 69.21 says that he'll be given vinegar to drink, which he was. Psalm 22.1 says that he will cry out in the pain of distress. Psalm 22.31 says that he will cry out the victory cry, it is finished. Zechariah 12.10 says that they will pierce him with a uh, a spear. And Psalm 16.10 says that he will rise from the dead. Psalm 10.1 even says that he'll ascend into heaven. All those are Old Testament prophecies that have been foretold before the time of Christ. And you stop and you think, okay, here he is in real time. This is coming up in a matter of days. And he gives them just kind of a couple sentences, but in those sentences is minute detail of exactly what is going to happen to him. If you read Psalm 22 or Isaiah 53 or even Zechariah's prophecy, you're going to have the description of details of our Lord's death on the cross. Now, a lot of people died on crosses back in the time of Christ. He wasn't the only one. It was a very common way to die. But all these things did not happen to those other people. So he's going to Jerusalem. He's on schedule. He's got a plan. He's not going to deviate from that plan at all. And as we look through the Old Testament, you see these prophecies over and over and over again. Um, The death of Jesus Christ is really the primary central event in history as well as in biblical literature. Uh, Someone once said it's a scarlet thread woven through the whole scripture. And you can see this throughout the Old Testament. You can see basic principles of redemption, biblical principles of redemption. The first one being that from the beginning, guilt and shame had to be dealt with. They had to be covered with a sacrifice. 
And you go all the way back to Genesis 3 where Adam and Eve sinned. They immediately, what they do? They became aware of their nakedness. They looked at themselves and wow, they were ashamed. They were naked. They needed to provide cover for themselves. And they got leaves and they covered their bodies until God came along and provided a sacrifice for them. But they needed to be covered. And those skins that God provided meant that somehow, somewhere, an animal had died. They didn't take away Adam and Eve's sin. Just like all the Old Testament offerings couldn't take away our sin. That's not the purpose of them. They could cover man's nakedness, but they couldn't cover his sin. They were only, you might say, symbolic of what was to come. And so from the beginning, guilt and shame had to be covered by sin. Secondly, biblical principle of redemption is that God revealed is that in, in Scripture is that he will provide the necessary sacrifice for man. He will deal with it. You remember when God took Abraham and Isaac up on the hill, up on the mountain, his only son, and he was about ready to plunge the knife into Isaac's chest, and God, what? Provided. And Abraham actually called that place, the Lord will provide. God provided a ram in place of Isaac in his place on the altar. And that's why God provided Christ. We needed a sacrifice for our sin. We can't sacrifice for our own sin. That leads us to the third principle there of redemption is that God revealed that the acceptable sacrifice of this nature had to be unblemished. It had to be a perfect sacrifice. And we see that in the Passover of Exodus chapter 12 when the death angel was about to pass over Egypt striking all the firstborn dead. God provided for those Israelites to be protected by, protected by the smearing of blood on their doorposts. And it had to be the blood of an unblemished, it said, lamb. And so we see that the sacrifice that needs to take place for redemption to even happen had to be an unblemished sacrifice. The last time I checked, none of us are perfect. None of us would meet that qualification. And then the fourth principle of sacrifice is that it's the central act of acceptable worship. If you know anything about the sacrifices in the Old Testament, if you study those at all, God showed Israel that sacrifice would really be central to any aspect of worship at all. Because when there was sacrifice involved, it opened up the way to God. No sacrifice by man could ever cover sin. Couldn't be morally or spiritually unblemished or become an acceptable act of worship. Only God himself could present such a sacrifice. And it had to be a divine sacrifice. And that's what he did through Christ. That's why when Christ died on the cross, you remember, that big, heavy, thick veil that was in the temple that separated the Holy of Holies from everyone else, it tore in two from top to bottom. And it basically 
validated that the whole sacrificial system in Judaism ended right there. They didn't need to do it anymore. The final sacrifice was offered. Now, they don't understand that. See, that's why the veil was ripped from top to bottom, the scripture says. So you couldn't think that you know, somebody was down there and had a knife and was kind of doing it themselves. No, it was top to bottom. Amazing. And less than 40 years later, the whole temple was destroyed in A.D. 70. So all those other sacrifices that they did were just wiped out. So you see here from Adam and Eve, we learn that sacrifice covers the guilt of sin. From Abraham, you learn that sacrifice can be a substitute which God will provide. And you see from the Passover feast that a sacrifice must be unblemished. It has to be perfect, without spot. And then even from the sacrificial law, you see the importance of sacrifice in the worshiping life of those that want to worship God. There'll be no worship of God without sacrifice. None. That's why when they have the sacrifices in the Old Testament, the first of the five offerings were always a burnt offering. And the burnt offering was always offered all to God. God needs to be offered the fullness of sacrifice in any act of worship. That's why it's so important when we gather together on Sunday or Wednesday or whenever we gather together, that we come together with a heart intent on worshiping God. And sometimes that gathering together means that we have to sacrifice things in our lives to be able to gather together in the first place. God will honor that. So God had to provide a sacrifice to cover the sin who was a substitute, who was unblemished, who could redeem his people so that they could worship him forever. See, that's why Jesus died on the cross. That's why the veil of the temple was torn. And the sacrificial system was over. Now, they don't understand that. They're going to try to redo it, right? But here we see clearly that it isn't just a verbal prediction that's going to happen one day. The whole flow of Scripture points to the death of Christ on the cross. And he is truly the Passover lamb. Now, the disciples were thinking of the kingdom. They were thinking of all the glories of the kingdom and everything, and they didn't want to hear about this. This kind of talk made them very nervous. I mean, they thought it was going to happen several times. Chapter 17 on the Mount of Transfiguration. I mean, they thought, wow, this is, this is it, you know. And now they're here, they're going to Jerusalem, they're confused, they're afraid, they don't know what's going to happen next. But you know what, I'm just here to tell you that the plan is in place. God isn't reacting in an adverse way. Jesus isn't getting a little nervous about this. No, he knows he's doing the will of his Father. See, that's a very practical principle for us to follow on an everyday basis. When we're within the center of God's will, it doesn't really matter what happens around us. Because we know that if we're focused on doing God's will and God has us right where he wants us and we're willing to serve him, all the rattling and all the, 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 the noise around us just gets drowned out because we know that we're doing what God wants us to do. 
And over and over, Christ was focused on doing the will of his Father. Uh, Even after his resurrection, when he met with those disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, he says, Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and enter into his glory? And he probably went on and explained to them, Look, this is something that has to happen. In, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says clearly that, you know what, the gospel is simply this, that Christ died, that he was buried, that he rose again, according to what? According to the scriptures. And he says that over and over again. In Psalm 22 and others, uh, chapter 24, verse 46, thus it is written that Christ will suffer. In 1 Peter, even in the New Testament, chapter 1, verse 11, it says that the prophets were looking at what they wrote and they saw two things. They saw the sufferings of Christ and they saw the glory that's going to follow. And if you don't focus on both of those, you're going to miss something. See, that's the problem with Judaism today. They focus on the glory of the Messiah. So when they look at the suffering that Christ went through, it doesn't relate to them. They just think, no, this isn't right. This can't happen. And so they miss Jesus as their Messiah because all they're interested in is the glory of the Messianic kingdom. They don't know what to do when they read Isaiah 53 or Psalm 22 or Zechariah. They have a hard time with that because it speaks of suffering. And in their mind, the Messiah will not suffer. Even when the little child was taken to the temple when he was little by his mother, when he met the man of God who was devout by the name of Simeon, he asked the Lord that he would not die till he saw the Messiah, and God granted him that request. And that little child was brought in for kind of a dedication, and it says that Simeon picked him up in his arms and blessed him and talked about how he would be for the, the falling and rising of many. And then he said this to Mary, and your heart will be pierced, though as with a sword. Why would he say that? Because he knew what was coming. God showed him that. There's going to be much pain ahead for you, Mary, because this is your son, and your son is going to suffer. And so it was that way, the very beginning, even when he came on the scene. What did John the Baptist say when he saw Christ? Behold the what? The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And even in Revelation, we read, he was a lamb as though it had been slain, and he is the lion of the tribe of Judah. So from cover to cover, it speaks of the sufferings of Christ. And that was his plan, and he never got off course on that. Well, let's look a little closer at some of these predictions. Some of the predictions of his death, the predictions of his suffering. He adds to what the Old Testament prophets were saying. And he says, first of all, we're going to go to Jerusalem. And he says there, the Son of Man shall be betrayed unto the chief priests and the scribes. They'll condemn him to death. And they'll deliver him to the Gentiles to mock, scourge, crucify. And the third day he'll rose again. I mean, he's predicting all these things. He's telling his disciples this is exactly what's going to happen. I mean, this is Jesus Christ, God in human flesh. And he knows all this. And he gives these details. 
Matthew and Luke add that he'll be uh, spit upon. Um, How did he know all that? He knew all that because he was God. You can't argue that fact. There's only one who knows the details like Christ knows here. This isn't any ordinary man. Think back. He knew how many husbands that the lady had and that the current guy she was hooked up with wasn't even her husband. And he knew a conversation before conversations even occurred. He could read people's hearts. He knew in advance. He told his disciples to go to get a colt. And he told them exactly what's going to be said. And here's what they say. Here's what, when they say this, you say that. And they'll give you the colt. Total strangers. He calls himself the son of man. That was his favorite term, by the way. It's used 80 times in the Gospels. It's a term of, you might say, humiliation. Um, and you see the first aspect of here. He suffered, really, the, the betrayal. The betrayal. Um, the verb betrayed here, it's not just simple to be handed over. But it implies the betrayal. And that's why translators put that, that word in there. You're betrayed by a friend. He was turned over to the chief priests. Who who were the chief priests? There's thousands of these guys. The chief priests were the upper echelon of the priesthood. They were the the Levites. They were at the bottom. The chief priests were at the top. And they weren't just the normal priests. They were the ones that were kind of a... uh, um, higher echelon of that group of people and you had to it was handed down from father to son so it was a very specialized group of folks kind of a aristocracy you might say and so they had this priestly line and they got their rank by hereditary upbringing and then you also had it says the scribes and they didn't get their rank by Heredity, but by knowledge. They were smart guys. They were kind of the lawyers of the law. They knew everything about the law, the Mosaic law. They knew it forward, backward, upside down. They slept it. You know, they just breathed it. They, they knew everything about it. But they missed some obvious truths. It just shows you that knowledge doesn't add up to everything. And it was Judas who betrayed Christ. And it says that he'll be betrayed over to the chief priests and scribes. And even the details of that betrayal are foretold in Scripture. Now, when you stop and you think of all the details here that are playing out before our eyes, and you see here that these predictions actually came to pass... He didn't miss one. Oh, it wasn't 30, it was only 25. But he still got this, you know, the silver right. No. Right, right down to the finest little detail, Christ met the mark. He stuck to the plan, and the predictions became true. 
And some of these things, some people say, skeptics say, oh, well, if he knew them in advance, then he just manipulated everything to line up. Well, think about some of these things. He couldn't. I mean, how could he manipulate being tied to a cross and having a guard come by and stab him in the side with a, a spear? Couldn't do that. He had no power to do that. And if they would have caught on to that, they would have done everything to avert these things happening. See, this is God's plan taking place. And we have to begin to understand that when we come to see these predictions play out, it kind of unfolds into the, the, the power of Christ's sufferings. Over and over again, when you look, read about the suffering of Christ, it's always plural. Because he suffered on several facets. He suffered not only physically, we think of that, and we're going to actually be watching a little video at the end of this message that portrays some of the, the, the whole secret ambition of Christ and puts this all kind of in a little nutshell for us that we can see and take home, understand clearly. But whenever Scripture refers to the suffering Christ, it always refers to that as plural. In Philippians 3.10, says the fellowship of his sufferings. In 2 Corinthians 1.5, the sufferings of Christ. In 1 Peter 1.11, the sufferings. 4.11, 1 Peter, the sufferings. Over and over again. Because he not only suffered physically, he suffered emotionally, he suffered even spiritually. I mean, the first thing we think of is the the pain of disloyalty that he was betrayed by one of his disciples. I mean, that's not a fun thing. Nobody likes disloyalty. Nobody likes the idea of being betrayed by somebody who's going to kiss you on the, the cheek. I mean, this... Judas was not just any old disciple. I mean, he was, he was part of the in-group there. He knew exactly what was going on. That hurts. But then you also understand the suffering of the pain of rejection. I mean, when you, when you stop and you think about the suffering of being rejected... People turning away when his whole purpose was to come and to, to draw people to God. Or you think of the aspect of his humiliation. I mean, how would you like to be God in a body and to have people spitting on you, calling you names, stripping you naked in front of everyone, beating you? I mean, the physical pain, I'm sure, was incredible. But think of the emotional trauma that Christ went through. People were turning away. It it even says in Isaiah 53 that we hid, as it were, our faces from him. Kind of like we don't even want to see you. There's a rejection in that. He was despised, he was hated. He was rejected. He was humiliated. And you stop and you think that he 
bore the pain of our guilt unjustly. Here is a a man who never did anything wrong. He was perfect in every way. He never sinned. And yet when he hung on that cross, God dealt with him as if he had committed every sin of every person who had ever believed in Christ. Amazing. Unjust guilt. That's painful. You hear news articles of people who were in prison for years and years and years only to find out, well, the the DNA doesn't match up and they never really did what they were incarcerated for. And you're thinking, man, how would you deal with that? I mean, some of these people spent 20-some years behind bars and then have been freed because of the details of the case became un- unveiled and they realized, wow, they made a mistake. What do you say to people? Oh, sorry? <laughs> you just took 20 years of your life? Now, granted, that's the minority. Most of the people when incarcerated are guilty. But Christ here was not. He was totally guiltless. And yet he was treated as the most guilty person who ever lived. Someone who never committed one sin was treated as if he had committed all. There's kind of a sense of unjustness to that. And then you think of the pain of his death. I mean, we've talked about this before. But you stop and you, you, you can't even begin to, I don't think we can even begin to understand that kind of physical pain. They say it's one of the most traumatic deaths that somebody could go through. The idea of this pain that he embraced. It says that they scourged him and then they crucified him. Flogged him and crucified him. We know what that is. They take a whip and they embed metal and glass and whatever in the, in the end of this leather whip. And as you whip the person in the back, it doesn't just you know, make little marks. It literally pulls flesh off the bone. That's how bad it was. To the point where probably your internal organs would eventually show because as the whip would rip around, it would rip from the sides of you and just pull layers of skin off. I mean, a horrible, horrible, torture, torturous thing. And this isn't just, you know, I mean, we focus on the physical aspect of Christ's death because we can kind of relate to that. We can understand that. And that wasn't that uncommon. I mean, when when they crucified people or people were tortured back then, I mean, they went through that kind of pain. See, it's not just about the physical pain that he endured, beloved. There's a a spiritual element to that. This is God we're talking about. This is the person who actually created those who were scourging him. Hard to understand. That injury... Pain of injury... Pain of death, eventually. All those things. He went there willingly. He died in our place. Even though if we would have went through the same death, we still wouldn't have paid for our sin. 
Do you understand that? Because we're not a pure sacrifice. He was a pure sacrifice. That's why he was called the Lamb of God. I mean, when they would whip these individuals, they would tie them around a pole so that your back was stretched tight so when the, you know, the whip would hit it, the skin would just lacerate open. They stopped one short of 40 because they didn't want to break the law. The law said you can't hit someone, whip someone more than 40 lashes. So he had 39 I mean, we just can't even imagine what he went through. He didn't die because of the nails in his hands. He didn't die from the scourging. How did he die? He didn't die because they put a crown of thorns on his head, beat his face to a pulp to to the point where you could probably even, couldn't even tell he was a human being. It's not the suffering of the physicality of this torturous event that killed Christ. He gave up his life. He said, no man takes my life. I'm going to give it up. I'm going to yield it up as a sacrifice. So you see the, the plan and the prediction and the power of Christ's suffering. I said he predicted two events, one glorious and one grievous. And you see the glorious event down in verse 19 after it says, They delivered him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. It says he will be raised up on the third day. I mean, that's, that's a prediction in and of itself that's, you know, you, you see some of these people making predictions and they make very wide, kind of throw the net real wide. Oh, there might be a tsunami in, in 2011, you know. And they make so many predictions, some of these guys on TV, then they simply go back when something happens or there may be a plane crash or whatever. Then they go back and they take out their little audio clip from that show that was whatever the year before and they say, see, I predicted this. Well, they don't show you the hundreds of other things that they predicted that none of it came true. It's a scam. Christ was no scam, beloved. He was who he said he was. He was the Son of God who came and lived here on this earth. It's not a fairy tale. This is not something we're making up. And he did rise on the third day. Praise God. Because if he wouldn't have, trust me, we wouldn't be here. (laughs) There'd be no reason to be here because he would have been known as a fraud. You can't classify Christ as just a good moral teacher. Either he's the real deal, he's who he said he was, he's Lord of Lords and King of Kings, or he's not. God said that he would never leave his soul in the grave, grave in Psalm 16.10. He would never let his Holy One see corruption. And on the third day, That's exactly what happened. He rose from the dead. Now you stop and you think, how could these guys miss this? I mean, this is the same Jesus that they saw people, him raise people from the dead. Why would they question this? 
because they weren't focused on the right things. Just like sometimes we don't get focused on the right things. I mean, just look at their perception. We'll get into this next week, but look at verse 20. I mean, here's Jesus bearing his heart and his soul to the, his, his group of followers. It says in verse 20, here's their response to this incredible revelation that Christ just gave them. It says, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, asked him for something. And he said, What do you want? And she said, Well, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left hand, Look at what it says, what? In your kingdom. See what I'm saying? They were so focused on kingdom living, they, they totally didn't get this idea of going to Jerusalem and dying. Even those they were fearful of it, they were afraid of it, they, they didn't get it, they didn't understand it. And they reacted it in such a way... I mean, think about it. If someone came up to you and said, you know, I just got some bad news. I have terminal cancer. And I have about three weeks to live. And you turned to him and said, hey, you want to come over for barbecue this afternoon? It would just be so, so, you know, wrong to do that. That's kind of where these guys were. They, they, it totally went over their head. They just didn't get it. They wanted a king. And yet they kept missing the fact that they needed a Savior. And that's what happens today, beloved, I think, in our society. People look at Christ as some kind of a little genie. You know, they want Christ because he'll give them a happy marriage and a fuller wallet and a better job and a bigger house and better kids. And they come to Christ for the simple fact that they want something. They want their felt needs met. I'm here to tell you, Christ isn't interested in meeting your felt needs. He's interested in saving your soul. The Bible does say that God meets our needs. Don't get me wrong. But you first have to kind of cross over to his side. You have to be willing to embrace and understand the suffering that he went through for you. And here are these guys, hey, I want to be on your left and your right. And they sent their mom, who's basically Jesus' aunt, his mother's sister. Hey, maybe you should go and talk to him. We have, we, we're part of the family. We can get a little inroads here and, and uh, smooch up to him. We're going to look at next week how Christ dealt with this. But you have to understand the suffering of Christ before you can understand the idea that he can save you. And he can. But I pray and I hope this morning that you don't miss the true reason that Christ came to earth. He didn't come just to do a bunch of miracles. He didn't come just to get a bunch of people following him. The secret ambition of Christ was truly to give up his life 
as a sacrifice for you and for me so that we could have that eternal life that the Bible speaks about. Let's close in a word of prayer and then we'll just watch this short little video and just pray you do so prayerfully. Father, we pray this morning that you would teach us what you would have us to learn. Lord, even as we view this video, that we would understand that Christ was a real person, that he lived a real life, that he dealt with real people as religious leaders who were against him and enemies. And Father, more than anything, we ask that you would not just have us accept that, but Lord, that we would be willing to embrace it, that we'd be willing to understand what it means to become a follower of Christ. That we can commit our lives to following Christ. That we can experience the forgiveness of sin, the promise of eternal life. That we can do it right now, right where we sit. Cry out to Him, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Show me the way. Teach me how I can be saved. He will do that if it comes from a sincere, humble heart. A heart that's broken. A heart that's dependent on Him for a Savior. Father, as believers, I pray that we'll be faithful to take the message of the gospel out to a lost and dying world. That we'd be faithful to share, not just with our lips, but with our lives, what Christ means to us and what it means to experience the forgiveness and the love and the freedom that we have in Christ. Father, I pray that you would just bless us now as we view this video, that you would speak to our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.